The reading tonight can be taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the Egyptians, the way the Egyptians are pressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who who am I that, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you, Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. 
But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder Egyptians. This is God's word. Let me uh, add my welcome to that few. My name's Phil. Um, I serve on the staff team here, particularly at 5 p.m. Let's pray. We've got a great passage to look at tonight. Our Father God, we ask that you give us understanding. Uh, There is much that is foreign to us here. And Father, most of all, we pray that we would know more about you tonight. Father, that is our deepest need and our deepest longing. And so we pray that your spirit would enable us to understand the truth about you in your word. Amen. What do we mean when we talk about God? At the heart of Christianity is a relationship with God. That's what it's all about. But what do we actually mean when we talk about God? I mean, nothing could be more important if you're interested in anything to do with Christianity than understanding what Christianity means by God. A generation ago, it wasn't such an important question, to be honest. A generation ago, even the atheists were Christian atheists in this country. (laughs) What I mean is that when people rejected God in this country a generation ago... They, reje- they knew what they were rejecting. There was a sort of consensus that God was the sort of biblical kind of a God. But these days, there is an enormous confusion at the heart of any discussion about God. Uh, you see it almost every day as commentators on the news talk about God in an interchangeable way. The God of the Hindus, the God of the Muslims, the God of the Christians, the God of the Mormons. All the sort of same. There's people of faith on one side, and they all believe roughly the same stuff. And there's people who don't have faith. As if you can lump all the religions of the world together and say they basically say the same stuff. And yet when you look into them, it's really obvious. They mean totally different things when they talk about God. It's patronizing really to to say you all believe the same things really. And so a lot of us are confused. What, What is actually meant by talk about God? No one seems to know anymore. It's um it's why people who spend a lot of time talking with uh people who don't follow Jesus, about what the, the gospel says, about Jesus. They say, if you're asked, as they often are, um, or told by people, look, I just don't believe in God, the most helpful thing to actually respond is, tell me about the God you don't believe in. Because by and large, when they do, it's nothing like the God we believe in. So actually, it's a great point of start. Uh, the God that Christians believe in is usually nothing like the God people think they're rejecting. But why do we need to go to a passage like this, a sort of enigmatic, quirky, weird, foreign, ancient text? I mean, can't we just go to Jesus? Jesus is the word made flesh. He reveals God fully. So why waste our time here a few thousand years beforehand? I mean, Jesus is the full, perfect image of God, right? Well, yes. But if we're to understand Jesus, we need to understand the God of the Old Testament. You see, in um, John eight fifty eight, there's a load of angry religious uh, leaders barracking Jesus and One of the big issues that's been going on is what right have you, Jesus, some uneducated northern teacher no one's ever heard of, what right have you got to to lead the people, to teach the people? And Jesus responds with these absolutely jaw-dropping words. He says, before Abraham was, I am. 
That's three, four thousand years ago. What are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus is saying that he is the creator God of Genesis, the water-splitting redeemer of Exodus. The one who appeared at the burning bush and said, I am. And therefore, if we're going to get who Jesus is, we do need to understand what on earth he meant for them to understand when he said, before Abraham was, I am. What did he expect them to have in their minds when he said that? Because we won't fully understand who Jesus is unless we get what is the God that he says he reveals like. And that brings us to Exodus 3. Uh, So if you've got your Bibles at page 43, and there's an outline so you can... um, Draw doodles, make notes, hopefully make notes um, of useful things rather than draw pictures of the burning bush or anything. Okay, Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So a long time has passed and Moses is a long way away from life in the royal palace in Egypt. He's now a shepherd looking after his father-in-law Jethro's flocks in the Sinai Desert. And one day he leads the flock to Horeb, which doesn't mean much anything to us, but it meant everything to an Israelite. Because Horeb is another name for Sinai, the mountain on which God met with his people after he led them out of Egypt. And one day soon Moses will lead another flock to this mountain for another fiery encounter with this same God who speaks. Verse 2. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight. Why on earth the bush does not burn up? Now people are forever trying to explain away the burning bush. You see, they say it was a eucalyptus and uh, the kind of oil somehow came out of the the leaves and, and then the rest of the tree acted like a wick. And so it, it's just not the point. When miracles happen in the Bible, the whole point is they're impossible. They show that someone with the power to break the laws of nature has stepped onto the stage. Someone who's not part of the system but is outside the system. You see, the miracles, uh, for the miracles to be believable in the Bible, it doesn't require a pre-scientific bunch of idiots. It requires people to believe in science, actually. Because the miracles only have meaning if people think there are scientific laws that are unbreakable. It's only then when if you see those unbreakable laws broken that you would think, God must be here. It's only then that a miracle is miraculous if you're convinced it's impossible. But why does God appear as fire here? I'm afraid we're not told. But God often appears as fire. And fire in the Bible is a symbol of purity, but it's also a symbol of danger. God is holy and pure. He's also not safe. Hebrews 12.29 tells us, Our God is a consuming fire. He's not a God to be trifled with. Now before we move on to see what does take place, it's very, very important you don't miss what doesn't take place. Don't miss what's missing in these verses. Do you see what Moses does not see? He doesn't see a face or any form at all, actually. Because God reveals himself in the Bible in words and actions rather than visible forms. See, it's interesting. You've got four whole gospels devoted to the life of Jesus and a whole load of letters written to the early church all about Jesus. How much do we know about the physical appearance of Jesus? 
nothing. He was a first century Jewish carpenter. So we're pretty sure he doesn't look much like the blonde-haired Swedish hippie of the children's Bibles and um, the image up on the wall there uh, with respect to whoever created it. But we've no idea what he actually looked like. God reveals himself in the Bible in words and actions, not in visible forms. He acts and then he explains. Because he won't let us just make of him what we will to transport onto an image of him our own ideas. We're not free to think about God in whatever way we want. He tells us what he is like and he does stuff to prove it. So if we want to know God, we need to seek out his words, for that is how he reveals himself. And thankfully, the God who is so silent in chapters 1 to 2 does an awful lot of speaking in chapter 3. And there are three things that we learn before we get to the great um, central verses. Three things we learn just in verses 4 to 12 from the almost the introduction, really. We learn he's the faithful God of promise, the compassionate God of action, and the powerful God who is with us. Firstly, he's the faithful God of promise. I'm afraid I'm slightly cheap. It's basically a six-point sermon, but I've gone 1A, 1B, 1C. In the hope that no one would notice. Uh, don't worry, it won't be three times as long as usual. 1A, uh, the faithful God of promise, verses 4 to 5. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. The first thing Moses learns, you cannot just walk into the presence of this God. The fire hinted at it. God now makes it explicit. Don't come any nearer. You can't. And take your shoes off as a sign of reverence. Verse 6. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Why at this does Moses hide his face? Why at that particular moment? Well, I guess because up to this point, he has no idea. Just some weird flaming bush that speaks. You know, why wouldn't you just come as near as you can? But he's heard about this God, the God of Abraham. He'd heard his parents talk about this God, a God very different from the gods of Egypt. You know, not a God who's uh, in charge of one little bit of creation. You know, the Egyptians had the God of the Nile and the God of the afterlife and the God of the sun. No, this was a God over everything and everyone. And a God of such holiness and purity that he destroyed the world in the flood because of the wickedness of humanity. No wonder he hid his face. How extraordinary then that the God who is unapproachable as fire should describe himself as, how does God describe himself? I am the God of a very ordinary human family, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But that is what he is. He is the God above all who humbled himself. And made a covenant, a solemn, binding promise to Abraham and his descendants to bless them and through them to bring blessing to the whole world. A blessing that would see the final destruction of all that's evil and the reverse of the curse even of death eventually. Uh, Kim Kardashian and Chris Humphreys, I have no idea who they are, I had to look it up. Uh, had a brief marriage, even by Hollywood standards. Their Till Death Us Do Part covenant lasted all of 72 days. How wonderful that by contrast, a thousand years after making his covenant 
with Abraham, this God is still faithfully keeping his promise. He is defined in the Bible by his faithfulness to every word he's spoken. You can bank every check God writes. He's the faithful God of promise. He's also the compassionate God of action. And this next section is all about the verbs. Verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt." Despite the apparent silence of the first two chapters, God has seen, he has heard, he is concerned, and so he has come to rescue, to lead his people out of the land of death and into a land of plenty. God will act for his people because God is a compassionate God who feels the suffering of his people. And he doesn't change even after a thousand years. And yet, even though he doesn't change after a thousand years, he's not some cold, unfeeling mountain. He is a God with a heart. The suffering of his people pains him. And he will act now to rescue and to bless. And when Pharaoh tries to stop God, he will find that as well as a soft heart, this God has a mighty arm. And he's very powerful to save his people. It's all going so well for Moses at this point. God's about to sort out Pharaoh once and for all. Brilliant. I'll get get my stuff packed. Run home to tell Zipporah. Uh, We'll meet the Israelites halfway out in in the wilderness. Zippy, pack the bags. Everything's about to change. And then God says, verse 10, So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. Ah, this isn't quite what Moses had planned. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, Uh, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now hang on a minute, God, you you seem to be forgetting. I had a go at trying to help the the Israelites before. That didn't work out brilliantly. I killed somebody who was an Egyptian who was oppressing an Israelite, buried him in the sand. The Israelites, far from following my lead, they turned their backs on me. Pharaoh stuck a, a price on my head and I'm now sat out here in the wilderness surrounded by goats. You know... I know you're omniscient and everything, God, but I think you've got this one wrong, in my humble opinion. What's Moses' problem here? His problem is he's a goldfish. I don't mean literally, he wouldn't have lasted very long in the desert if he was a goldfish. But he has a memory like a goldfish. In fact, his memory is even worse than a goldfish. He can't even remember the last sentence God has spoken to him. Moses asks, who on earth am I? How on earth am I supposed to go against the mighty God, King Pharaoh? But what has God just said in verse 7 to 9? I have seen, I have come to rescue, I will bring them out. Moses' abilities are irrelevant. God is providing the authority and the power, and we'll see much more of this next week. That God has forgotten, not forgotten, his thousand-year-old promise is reassuring. That the great God of the cosmos should have compassion on suffering people is wonderfully comforting. But all of that is as nothing compared with the promise at the heart of verse 12. And God said, I will be with you 
And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. God won't just send fire and hail on Egypt. God won't just split the Red Sea and open the door for the people to walk out. He will go with them. And they will meet with him here on this mountain. God will be their God. I've rescued a dog. It's a phrase that actually can have two meanings. As it happens, I have rescued a dog. I'm quite pleased with myself for it. Running along the Thames one day, saw a small crowd of people at the side of the Thames and looked over and there was a poor staffy floundering that had somehow fallen down into the Thames about 15 feet below. I like to claim I had to dive in, swim against the surging currents and whisk it up just before the sharks closed in. Um, But it was, if I'm honest, more a case of climb down the ladder, grab the dog and haul him back up to safety. Not very Baywatch, let's be honest. The only risk I faced was allowing my skin contact with the Thames, which is a not inconsiderable risk. It would have made a much better story, though, if there had been sharks. Um, But anyway, I rescued the dog, gave it back to its owner. But actually... There's another way that people talk about rescuing a dog. Usually they mean something much more than what I did. Usually they mean they went to Battersea Dog's home. And to rescue a dog means that you go there and you choose some poor unwanted mongrel and bring it home. Take it in. Welcome it to your family. To rescue a dog like that means I took something unwanted and I brought it into relationship with me. And I promise to look after it forever. And that is what God is promising here. Not that he'll pluck the Israelites out of Egypt and just dump them in the deserts. But that he will welcome them into relationship with him forever. See, unlike every film version of Exodus, the climax of the book of Exodus is not the the plagues hammering down on Egypt. It's not even the Red Sea splitting open. The climax of the book of Exodus in chapter 40 is when they finish building a tent A special tent where God promises that he will come and dwell amongst them. The climax of the book of Exodus is God living with his people in relationship with them. The God of Exodus is the God who says to his people, I will be with you. Okay, Moses has one more question and God's answer is one of the most famous, enigmatic, head-scratching verses in the whole Bible. So Moses says, verse 13, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. What on earth is going on there? Uh, Two questions that I'm going to try to answer. Firstly, what does I I am who I am mean? And secondly, how does that relate to Lord? If you look in verse 15, you'll see Lord with a little um, mark after it and referring you down to a footnote. I'll deal with that, first, that second question first. Lord translates the word Yahweh, or in the old translations, it's the word Jehovah you might recognize. And it's a derivation, a version of the Hebrew, I am. 
So it's almost the same word as the word that appears up in verse 14, I am. So why on earth do we translate it Lord in capitals rather than Yahweh? Well, it goes back to the Septuagint, which I'm sure answers it for all of us. Uh, The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The apostles tend to quote when they um, quote the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Septuagint translators translated Yahweh, I am, as Lord. It has the advantage that it gives an obvious link to the New Testament when Jesus refers to himself as Lord. And referring to God as Yahweh in English, just it doesn't have any meaning to us because the word Yahweh in English is, has no relationship to I am. So there you go. It's not massively important, but I thought I'd better explain it. So much more importantly, what does I am who I am or I will be who I will be mean? It has three simultaneous meanings. Here you go. Firstly, God is saying, I exist. Now that might seem rather blindingly obvious. But throughout the Bible, God makes it clear he is not like the gods of other nations and cultures. The fundamental difference between the God of the Bible and the God of the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Hindus or the Muslims is that he exists. He is real. He is not a religious idea. In other words, he doesn't exist in the sense that there are a whole load of people who believe in him. And so, you know, there is this real concept of the God of the Bible. Now, he exists whether we believe in him or not. He exists whether we like him or not. God exists whether there are humans to believe in him or not. He's not contingent or dependent. He is the foundation of all existence. He is. Who made the God of the Bible? God's answer to that question is, no one made me, I am. means he exists. Secondly, uh, the words can be translated, I will be who I will be, and that means two things. It means we can rely on this God. I will be who I will be is a way of saying, just as I've been the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, so nothing will stop me continuing to be that sort of God for you in the future nothing can change him he's already perfect so he won't get any worse because he's perfect he won't get any better because he's perfect he's unchanging and he is the unchanging god of the patriarchs who moses could trust and you and i can still rely on him to be the unchanging consistent in love grace and compassion sort of a god he will always be the same as he is Everything we learn about him in the Bible will always remain true. There's a sense too, actually, that uh, I will be who I will be is a a refusal to answer Moses' question in one sense. It's as if God is saying, I'm not going to give you the sort of name you're after. I'm not going to let you put me in a box. uh, Say, okay, that's the sort of God you are. I'm not like that. You will see who I am by what I do. Don't try and define me. Learn from what I do and what I say. Don't try and define me, Moses. Thirdly, God has a future. The God who is and the God who will be has a future. There is more to come from this God. Moses can expect to hear more, to learn more, to to experience more of this God. You see, God is a God who's chosen to reveal himself in relationship to his creatures, to, to humans like you and me. And he wants relationship with us. And this is just the start of God acting to reveal himself. And so God continues in verse 15 to expand what Moses should say. Not just I am, but 
Verse 15, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's who he is. And he'll say even more in Exodus 34, 6, as he proclaims his name there. And of course, a few thousand years later, the word I am takes flesh and becomes a man with the name Jesus. In other words, Exodus 3.14 is not the end of God's revelation. I'm going to tell you in this verse, in this name, all that you need to know. It's the start, the promise of an exciting journey of discovery, of relationship, of knowing God. But although God reveals more and more and more, he is always deepening the truth. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. All that they've heard about his dealings with their forefathers remains true. God hasn't changed. He won't evolve or develop. Every revelation just takes us deeper into relationship with him. In other words, a billion years into eternity, a billion years into God's new paradise kingdom, you and I will know far, far more about God than we know now. But everything you learn in eternity will be precisely consistent There'll be no surprises. Wow, I had no idea you'd be that sort of God. No, he'll be exactly the sort of God we've learned now, but we'll just know far more and far more deeply. In other words, it's a bit like, well, nothing. There is no story about a holiday or about a time you missed a trip. There is no analogy like it because he is unlike everything. The whole point of what's going on here is, Moses, forget everything you know. Don't try and say, I'm like anything. I'm unlike anything. I am who I am. You can't illustrate that sort of God. But then this God promises to deliver. Again, God speaks. And again, the gap between Moses' idea of what a sort of God is from Egypt and the great God of the Bible grows bigger and bigger. Verse 16, go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob appeared to me and said, I've watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I've promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt and into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord, our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor, and any woman living in her house, for articles of silver and gold, and for clothing, with which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. I don't know who your favorite superhero is. I've always been a sort of Batman. It's the gadgets, I think. But the superheroes that we're used to from comic books are basically like the gods in Egypt. They're sort of supercharged versions of humanity. Humans 2.0. Here is something else entirely. Here is not a human with extra powers. Here is a God who's able to talk about the future in intricate detail and to tell you about what's going to happen in the decisions of a human heart. Here is a God of limitless sovereignty. I mean, you read these verses and you wonder... 
Is there nothing this God can't do? Well, no, actually, as it happens. He's in control of the Israelites, his people, so he can predict how the elders will respond to Moses, verse 18. But he's also God over those who aren't his people. So he can open the hearts of the Egyptians to give silver and gold to the the Hebrew slaves. And he's got over the other supposed gods, the gods of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. They're powerless to stop God giving the land to his people. Not even mighty Pharaoh, the king god of Egypt, is beyond the control of this god. Here is the god who will be who, who, who will be. Here is the God who owns the future. Nothing can stop this God doing what he's planned and what he's promised. So what do we do with a passage like this? The language is just foreign and and confusing. So how are we supposed to work out what it means for you and me as we go away from here? Well, firstly, this is a God you can know. He's not hiding. He takes the initiative to reveal, to know us. We don't have to track him down. We don't have to trick him into letting us in. He comes looking for us, for a relationship with his people. He wants us to know him. He wants you to know him personally. That is wonderful if we want to know God, but it is also a challenge. The God who reaches out to us is a God who reveals himself clearly and deliberately. He doesn't leave us just to make up our own ideas about him. He is the God who speaks a clear word from the fire, not the God of smoke and fog and confusion. Here is a God who is not happy for us to project our needs and ideas and longings onto him. We don't get to decide which bits of this God we like and construct a version of him which we're comfortable with, which meets my needs and which isn't going to be too un-PC in our culture. He is who he is. And a God we can know is a God we can trust. He is a God who is sovereign over history. He rules the past and he rules the present and he rules the future. And he even rules our human hearts. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob has proved himself faithful and good to all the descendants that followed. And as we read the next chapters in Exodus, we will see he is faithful to Moses And he is faithful in our generation too. You and I can trust this God. Every promise he makes, we can bank. This God's checks never bounce. Every promise you read is a promise you can stand on. He promises in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you until the end of the age. You can trust that promise. He will never leave you. He promises in Romans 8, 28, that he is at work to bring good and blessing from all the tragedies and trials that we go through in this life, you can trust that promise. He promises in Matthew 18 that he will grow the church. And as we uh, see the, the growth of secularism and the increasing hostility to Christianity in this country and we feel afraid, we can trust his promise that he will build his church. He promises in Psalm 16:11 that eternal, unimaginable pleasures are awaiting us in his paradise kingdom at the right hand of God for all who trust in him. And we can trust that promise. And there are thousands of other promises in this book and every one of them is guaranteed by the God who is and a God who will be. 
We must look back in our lives and at God's track record there. And we must look back in his word at his track record there and reflect on his faithful compassion, his unending forgiveness and his wonderful provision so that we can look forward to the future with confidence as we trust the great I am, a God we can know and a God we can trust. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much that uh, you don't leave us in the dark, in confusion, to make up our own ideas about you, to try and work out what sort of God we think you might be like. We thank you instead that you speak. You speak clearly to us. And thank you that when you speak, you reveal that you are a God who is real and unchanging. And therefore, we can trust you. Help us to learn to do this. Amen.